Well, uh, if, if you're like me, um, maybe, maybe you've been around some little ones in your life. It, tell me if this is not just a ubiquitous, every home, every, everybody's faced this moment where you're, you're watching television, uh, you've got the TV on, you, maybe, maybe it's family time, maybe, maybe it's not, maybe it's just the adults are trying to watch TV and the kids are doing a thing, and then inevitably a child or a little person of some kind will walk into the room and they're, they're kind of looking at the TV and then they just get captivated by it. And, and so you're standing here or you're sitting here and you're watching the TV and they just walk in. They're supposed to go to their chair. They're supposed to come ask you a question, but then they just stop like right in front of you. And you're like, I can't, I can't see. And they're like, and they're all breathy. Dad, can I? And then they get distracted and they stand there a little bit longer and they're watching TV and you're just thinking, yeah, come on, come on, junior. Let's get to it. Let's get to it. And, and at some point you do what? You do Hey, can you, can you just move like two inches to the left or two inches to the right? Because why? You're blocking my view. Anybody face this in life, humanity? You go, you go to the movies and inevitably the seat that you paid good money for, you sit down, has like Abraham Lincoln sitting in front of you with his top hat. He's about eight foot three, uh, bigger than a house. And he thinks he's, you know, little, little Stuart Jr. or whatever. And you can't see around him. And you think, I am the entire time trying to look around this, this guy. Or, you know, if, if you go to, I enjoy going to like little, uh, like high school, middle school, even, even peewee league games, football, soccer, it doesn't matter. Because like the skill set is so raw that like anything could happen. You could be tackled playing soccer. It could really happen on the six-year-old field. Who knows what, what is going to go down. But inevitably, I'm always in a position where all the action is way over there. It's just so far away. And what I would love, what I would love is just a way, because you go, if you go to the NFL, they've got the big Megatron. They've got, and I guess some of our, our high school stuff is starting to get that, but even still, it's not the best view ever. No matter where I sit, no matter where I'm standing, if I'm there for a good view, something, someone, somehow, or an object is going to get in my way, and I always find that I have to, have to kind of either step to the side, either I have to move, or I have to politely ask my child, hey, buddy, can you go get your juice pack and like go that way because we're mom and dad, we're watching, we're watching whatever we're watching right now. And so uh, that's kind of the imagery that I have as we begin this series called Some Disassembly Required because what, what we talked about last week is this story of Jesus flipping the tables and what Jesus was flipping, you know, like literally was the tables and running the money changers out, but he was flipping these obstacles that were getting in the way of people seeing who God the Father was. They were unable to get a good glimpse of God because because of some things that were in the way. And so we just, we kind of breezed over that entire story. And so what I want to do now is for the next several weeks is I just want to look at different things in scripture that, that seem to point to either stuff that's in our hearts or stuff that's in like communities of people that are just getting in the way of getting a good glimpse of God. Because here's what I believe. I believe that the gospel is so good and so hopeful and it intersects with all of the ugly bits of my heart in such a beautiful way that if anyone, if anyone sees the gospel for what it truly is, their heart should ache for it to be true. And if someone out there in this community, someone you know, a loved one that you know, or if you're in this room right now, you're like, hey, I am that person. I am this person that I hear the gospel and I'm repelled by it. I hear what you say about Jesus and it disgusts me. I'm telling you there's an object in the way for you to see what this really is. Now, at the end of the day, you can see that what I'm going to describe or what this Jesus of scripture is really, really good. And you can still say no to it, but I want you to be saying no to a real unobstructed view of who God is and what Jesus says. 
Um, so that's kind of our work. Just, you know, easy stuff for the next few weeks. Um, and, and full full disclosure, I may be, uh, I'm, I'm not extra caffeinated today. I'm just a little extra excited uh, because, because I planned this message. Oh, golly, the series has been on my books since mid-December. I knew that after I taught Jesus Flipping the Tables, I wanted to start this series. I knew kind of what it was going to look like. And then the one message that was supposed to be today, as I'm looking over my notes yesterday, I'm like, that's not one. That's at least two. And then I kept working on it. It turned into three. I did three sermons this week. Uh, you're just getting the first one. Uh, we're, we're, I'm, I'm nerding out, but uh, let's, let's just get into it. We're going to get into the scriptures. Uh, I want to look at this really neat story in Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. Uh, let me Maybe, maybe set it up just a little bit as you turn there. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. So if you're kind of like, where do I find it? Just get to the New Testament, then get to the first one. Matthew chapter 9 was written by a guy named... Matthew, there you go. Uh, Matthew, he just like, I, this is the gospel of Matthew. He just writes his name at the top. Matthew was a tax collector. Tax collectors are yuck. Like we, like you, you know this, like this time of year, what is it right now? February something. Everybody in here has a bad feeling in their gut about the IRS and taxes. Anybody else like really surprised with like taxes this year? Just me? No? Okay. I surprise I owed taxes this year. I'm like, how'd that happen? I don't know. Uh, and so anyway, my wife and I, we have a lot of bad feelings about tax collectors, so we get this. We get what's about to happen right here. Matthew was a tax collector that Jesus chose to follow him. Now that that should blow most of our paradigms about what kind of people Jesus wanted to go get. Because in our world, the kind of people that seem to be called into churches are the ones who are already pretty good, or already pretty nice, already like they don't cuss and they don't smoke and they don't drink. So that's why they go to church. And, and what we see instead is that Jesus actually like went up to a tax booth. Hey, Matthew, you want to follow me? Matthew's like, yeah, I've got nothing else going on. Okay, and he like closes up shop. All of the money-making schemes that he had, he just like, I'm going to follow Jesus. In fact, let me read one verse before what's going to be on the screens. I'm going to start in verse 9, chapter 9, verse 9, uh, where Jesus goes and gets Matthew. He says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. There's not a lot of discussion here. You know, so, so when Jesus sees Matthew, he's like, uh, I'm a rabbi. You don't look like you know much about God. Maybe, maybe you're kind of far from God. Maybe, why don't you follow me? And Matthew's like, okay, I will. So he follows him. And then what happens next is the story that if, it's weird because it's 2,000 years old and yet it's just as scandalous today as it was when Jesus did this. Matthew is so excited to have a rabbi call him to follow him that Matthew throws a party and invites his friends. Now, here's the problem with tax collectors, uh, one of many. Uh, their friend group aren't the saints in the world. It's not like Matthew is the only knucklehead and all of his friends are just really godly, good, good people. No, Matthew hung out with people that were like Matthew. They, he looked like the world, smelled like the world, talked like the world, and he throws a party, invites Jesus, and invites all of his friends. And now you have this moment where the holiest man who's ever walked the earth is at a party having dinner and drinks with tax collectors and sinners and just all the ruffians of the community. So let's, let's look at it. I'm, I'm introducing it instead of just reading. Let's read the, the, the scriptures. So uh, verse 10, it says this. 
And it says, and as Jesus reclined at table in the house, in Matthew's house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Now notice it says reclining, that he's reclining at the table, that these tax collectors and sinners reclined with him. Uh, Have you ever been to a meal uh, maybe, I don't know where you go for meals, cheddars, I don't know, chilies, wherever you go. Uh, and, and you're sitting at a table with someone you really don't like, right? You've ever been in a group of people and you like these two people, but you don't like these two people. Sorry if that offends anybody over here. And, and you're just sort of like the whole conversation stays with these two people. Why? Because when we go eat, we sit upright where our back is straight and you can kind of, you know, arch yourself in the seat and just let the people you don't want to talk to be over there. And you just have your conversation with the two that you want. It is very, very different in the, in the ancient world. Okay. When it says that they reclined at the table, they literally laid next to each other on like a, it's called a triclinium. It's a three-way table that, uh, like, think of like a U-shaped table, and a server could come down the middle and kind of put food and drinks and everything uh, around and kind of leave. And everybody would literally lay on their elbow, on their shoulder or something, as they ate their meal. So they would lay on one side and eat with one. And so when when Scripture says that Jesus is reclining at the table with his disciples and tax collectors and sinners, that's a pretty intimate moment. You can't ignore the guy who's like, his head is right next to your ears. Like, hey, Jesus, can you pass the, the Parmesan? Jesus like, yeah, sinner, here you go. And so he, he can just hand it to him, you know? Uh, it's really, really close. Uh, if, you, if you walked by and, and Matthew is like this tax collector who, you know, he, he threatened you last week. He threatened to take your house because he's the tax collector and you weren't paying your taxes. He threatened to take your business because that's in his power to do. And you walked by and you saw Jesus, this rabbi who you were thinking about following, laying next to Matthew. Would you get a weird feeling? Like, hold on just a second. That that guy's a monster. He's hanging out with with a tax collector. See, see, notice notice what scripture says is that it, it describes them as tax collectors and sinners, which is this just ambiguous term of all the jerks in the world, okay? It's not, it's not, you never see in here where Jesus is going to say, listen, I know you call Frank a sinner, but if you knew Frank the way that I knew Frank, you would know that he's really a good guy. At no point in this story do the tax collectors and sinners say, nope, that's not me. At no point in the story does Jesus say, listen, you've got them all wrong. Even the tax collectors and sinners are like, I'm a tax collector. I'm a sinner. I, I have no business here, but Jesus let me come. I get to have a meal with him. This is, this is really scandalous in that day. And if I had to be honest with you, how many of you are trying to call the IRS agent to come hang out at your house and have coffee? None of us are. How many of you are trying to go get that bully who's been picking on your kid for the last three months and saying, hey, let's invite the parents over, I, not to fight, right, but just to have a conversation and to enjoy a meal? And see, see, even today, we segment our lives based on either you behave and you're welcomed in, or you misbehave and you just get to be with them over there. These are the, the tax collectors and sinners. Verse 11 says, and when the Pharisees saw this, you got to love that. They're just kind of walking by. There's a party at Matthew's house. He's not in his booth. Let's go to his house. Let's see. And they see what's happening. They said to, and I like this, they don't go to Jesus with their concern. They go to the disciples. You have anybody in your life that instead of going to you and talking to you about the problems that they have with you, they talk about you behind your back to your best friend? It's the same thing that's happening here. He says, and the Pharisees saw this. They said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners. Why does your teacher spend any time with those people? 
Doesn't your teacher know that those people aren't behaving properly? Doesn't your teacher know that that's a sinner? They, they are in the face of God. They, they have no interest in following God. They've been pushing back against following God. The Pharisees have this mentality that before you belong, you must first behave. And if you behave, and you work really, really hard at your behavior, and you behave to such an extent, we might, in the goodness of our heart, welcome you and let you belong to our group. But if you choose to not behave, if you choose not to clean up your mouth, if you choose not to stop sinning, then you're just out there and you're with them. Do we have anything that looks remotely like that in our community, in our lives? I'm sure this is, like I said, 2,000 years old. We've, we've evolved far beyond this us versus them. You, you have to behave before you belong mentality, right? We don't deal with that anymore, right? No, of course not. I have grown men and grown women coming and talking to me, and they're like, yeah, this thing happened to me in middle school, and it's happening to me again at work. And I'm like, when is this going to stop? I don't know. I don't know when it's going to stop. It just seems to be human nature that we have a mentality of, if you're going to belong to my group, you must behave like my group. And if you're not going to behave like my group, just get away. Just go over there. There's another word for that. It's called tribalism. And we have a huge pressure to figure out what tribe we belong to, what the values of that tribe is, how that tribe raises their kids, and then to begin to behave like our tribe. If at any point we misbehave based on the values of our tribe, our tribe is quick to push us out. And so it creates these levels of not only conformity, but it creates these buckets, these cliques where people can't belong to the group. I think many of you know uh, kind of my story, my childhood growing up. Uh, my dad is, uh, he's, he's in recovery. He's sober now. But, but growing up, he would tell you, he would come up here and tell you, like he, he was uh, an alcoholic. And we, like father-son time, was just going to the bars. It was, it was actually kind of cool. I enjoyed it quite a bit uh, just because, like, I didn't know that this is not where kids should hang out. And the people were really nice. What's funny to me is, like, I remember in my childhood some of the nicest best behaved people that were kind and would look out for each other had terrible marriages, were wrestling with alcoholism and spent all of their waking hours in the bar. You would just go in there, whether it's 9 a.m., 9 p.m., 2, you know, 1.59 a.m., whatever time it was, like Bill was there and he was just hammered. But if you had a plumbing problem, Bill was your guy. He would do it for free. He would do it for like a 12 pack. Like he didn't care. Like it, Bill was so kind and they looked out for each other. What's fascinating to me is that the same groups of people that the church is like, listen, you've got to sober up. You've got to get your life together before you can belong. They start to form their own groups. They start to, they start to look out for each other. So uh, I grew up, the house uh, that I grew up in was across the street from a bar called Irene's Lounge, if you know where that's at. It's not there anymore. Uh, and my neighbor was the owner. Her name was Irene Collins, and I loved Miss Irene. I would go talk to her. Uh, she would always buy me like a birthday present. I would bring her like candy every now and then. And as she was getting older, I would just sit sometimes and, and talk to her. And one day, Irene is telling me like her whole story coming up, her whole story about, about like faith in the bar and like her, her business model. And she told me that she uh, had just recently started going to church and she was going to a church I want she she like named the church and the denomination all that it's not irrelevant for now and she belonged and she was welcomed and she was loved for about 18 months and then one day someone's like hey Irene like what do you do for a living she goes oh I own Irene's lounge I, I own a bar and they immediately told her if you're going to go to church here 
you have to sell that bar. You cannot be a bar owner and a member of our church. Miss Irene, she got her feelings hurt. She left. And as far as I know, she never went to church again. She never did. And she's telling me this at like 16 years old. And even at 16, I'm thinking to myself like, but isn't the church supposed to like welcome people? Like, aren't we supposed to love people? But even the church, the church that follows this Jesus who reclines at table with sinners and tax collectors, it's the same Jesus of all the churches. Even the church has sometimes gotten into this habit of, we need your behavior to be fixed before you can belong. And that is not how Jesus operates. There's actually a word, uh, it's a big 10 cent word. If you're ever on Jeopardy, you may need to know this word. Maybe write this down. It's a word for the belief that God wants to improve your behavior before you're allowed to belong. Are you ready? That word, I'm going to look at it, make sure I say it right, okay? Moralistic therapeutic deism. Wow, that's a mouthful, isn't it? Moralistic therapeutic deism was a term coined in a book written in 2005 trying to understand the teenagers of 2005. It was called the, uh, I don't have it here, the, the religious and something habits, the religious and spiritual habits of teenagers dated 2005. If you grew up, if, you're, if your Christian beliefs were formed in that early 2000 period, you may have adopted moralistic therapeutic deism and didn't even realize that you adopted it. Because, because what moralistic therapeutic deism says is this, is that God's primary goal in your life is to change your behavior. God's primary goal in your life is he wants you to stop cussing and he wants you to stop, you know, whatever, drinking. He wants you to stop being mean. He wants you to fix your anger problem. He wants you to be nicer. God's primary goal, according to this view, is that he wants to change your behavior. And if you are good at changing your behavior, then just maybe, if you're lucky, you get to belong to a group of people who behave the same as you. And I got, I got bad news for people who believe that. God's not into changing people's behavior. That's not his primary goal anyway. It's, it's a side effect. It, what God's primary goal is, he literally wants to resurrect your heart. See, see when we get it mixed up, when we, when we focus on behavior first before belonging, we put all of this pressure on us to get our act together, to get our lives right, before we even think that Jesus would accept us. What if I told you, that Jesus didn't die on the cross in hopes that one version of you in the future, you've completely perfected all of your behaviors, and then you're worthy of walking to him and being accepted to you. And when I say it like that, doesn't that sound completely ridiculous? That's a high-risk move to die on a cross in hopes that one day you will get your act together. That's not the goal of Jesus. The goal of Jesus is that he dies on the cross so that you can belong before your behaviors are changed. And then as a consequence of your heart being resurrected to the truth of who Jesus is, the truth of who God is calling you to be, your behaviors just start to follow that. So the Pharisees, they've got it wrong, but they don't have it wrong in an old foreign antique way. They got it wrong in the same way we see it getting wrong around us. They believed you had to behave before you can belong. And so what we have in the story, if, if I can use the imagery of Jesus flipping tables, what we have in the story is this really big table that's really making it hard for people to see Jesus clearly and to see God clearly. And that table is something about how we hold people accountable to behaviors before we accept them. This table is something about keeping people in their cliques until they've earned the right to be a part of our clique for whatever value that is. See, sometimes... It's hard to see God. This big barrier is there. Sometimes it's hard to see God because you're in a group that's being pushed out. 
And in fact, some groups that are being pushed out actually kind of like that. It's one of the defining characteristics. I'm the group that nobody accepts. I don't fit in anywhere. I, I can't tell you how many like middle-aged like Facebook uh, profiles I have in my friend group that I'll see. like, you won't like me at my best. You won't have me at my worst or something. Like, it's like these weird, like rhymey phrases. Like, uh, and it's always like someone that's really angry and they're like, you won't accept me. I'm like, well, maybe it's because you talk like that. You know, <laughs> maybe if you didn't begin with, you're not going to accept me. Like you can just come hang out with me and have, a, you know, something to eat or something. Uh, your group, is sometimes hard, God is hard to see because you're, you're belonging to a group that's getting pushed out and some versions of those groups really enjoy that. Sometimes it's hard to see God because, because we're the ones who are refusing to accept those whom God is willing to redeem. God was willing to redeem Matthew, but the Pharisees were like, I, I'm for God, but I'm against God doing that. How many people how many sinners and tax collectors, quote, sinners and tax collectors, do, do we know that fit into this category of you're not like God, that God is not willing to redeem? Uh, the truth is, is that the cross says he's willing to redeem all. And the scripture says that he wishes that none should perish. No, not one. And so if God is willing to redeem those people, then we should not be quick to, to push those people out. We need to be quick to accept people that God is willing to redeem, which, by the way, is all the people with a face, Okay and maybe even a few others. I can imagine scenarios where someone lost their face and God still wants to redeem them. So, so sometimes it's hard to see God because you're a part of the group that's being pushed out. Sometimes it's hard to see God because we're a part of the people that are pushing those people out. And sometimes it's hard to see God because we're too sure of our own rightness to realize that we're also just as blind as the person that is obviously needing the help. The Pharisees mistook one very important thing. They knew who the sinners and tax collectors were. Like, we know who you are, and the sinners and tax collectors, you got that right, buddy, and I'm coming for you here or something. I don't know. I don't know if they threatened them. And then, and then they knew who Jesus was. Like, he shouldn't be with them. So they knew something about Jesus' character. What they got wrong was their own stinking heart. They were so sure of their own rightness and their own moral aptitude that they didn't see that they, too, needed a Savior, so what do we do with this table? How do, we, how do we flip it? How do we get it out of here? Here's, here's what Jesus says, if I can find it. Verse, verse uh, 12. But when he heard it, I love this. They're talking about Jesus behind his back. Hey, why is your teacher hanging out with these jerks? But when he heard it, it's always good that when Jesus is like, oh, you're talking about me? Let's just have a conversation then. Here's what he says. He says, but when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. You know, he kind of looks at him and is like, well, you guys think you're so healthy. That's why I'm not hanging out with you. It's, it's these people who know that they're sick. People who know that they're sick know that they need help. But if you're so healthy, maybe, maybe you don't need a physician. Go, he says in verse 13, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Go and learn what this means. You know, the, the first thing Jesus says in response to this is like, how, how, do we, how do we flip this table? Go and learn. Go, go and learn what this means. If your spiritual formation came up in that early 2000s, and I say that like it stopped, it still continues, in that early belief that God is really after changing behaviors, then, then you've adopted that. You haven't thought on that. You haven't meditated that. You might have a very difficult time taking Jesus at his word and behaving like Jesus in this way. It might crawl all over you because you're waiting for that so-and-so to get their behaviors right before they can belong, and you will welcome them. Like, you're willing to in welcome them, to let them belong to your group, but you're just waiting. Like, 
won't you get those behaviors right? And, and Jesus' response is like, you guys go and meditate on this idea of mercy versus sacrifice. What, one of the things that we may need to do is we may need to be honest that this table isn't outside of us. It's those people over there. This table might be right inside of our hearts. I have a hard time accepting people until their behaviors match what I think their behaviors should be. I have a hard time being kind and generous and welcoming and pointing people to Jesus until their behaviors get right. That, that, is, that is something that we need to address in ourselves. And maybe, maybe the healthiest, most spiritual thing you can do is to just spend the next week meditating on that. It's like, God, what have I done? Am I, am I treating others the way that you're treating them? Am I pushing people away that you're trying to redeem? Like, am I standing in the way of what you're trying to do? It very well could be me that needs to be flipped out of this equation. Go and meditate on what this means. Go and, and learn what this means. That I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus is quoting the, the Old Testament, just in general, this idea of mercy, not sacrifices. God wants mercy, not religious activity. See, so, so many times we substitute the ways that we should behave and the ways that we should treat people with, well, I attended church and I sang that song as loud as the speakers, which is my spiritual gift, by the way. I can't sing on key, but I can sing louder than any of the speakers in here. Uh, and, and I would be a fool to substitute my religious activity with actually treating people with the mercy that Jesus is instructing me to treat. Now, interesting thing about this quote that he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. It's almost certainly uh, one specific. You can find it in all throughout the Old Testament. You can find it in the writings of Moses. You can find it specifically in Psalms. You can find it written about David. And all of the prophets have this mentality that God's not, like the law wasn't for us to just like substitute our behaviors. But this is almost a word for word quote from Hosea. And if I could just take the last few minutes of my time, I just want to introduce to you the prophet Hosea, Hosea with an H, uh, and just tell you kind of what that story looked like, because it is a heartbreaking story. Hosea is a prophet right before God sends Israel into exile, the northern kingdom, the first kingdom into exile. And so just to put this on, on our terms, uh, if, if, you've ever, if you've ever been talking to a child and you're like, hey, get your, you need to behave, you need to change, you need to stop doing that, okay, I'm going to count to three, one, two, and you know when you get to two, it's like this really long two because you don't want to get to three. You know what I'm talking about? Like it's a really long one. Hosea is God at the number two. And he's like, hey guys, get it together. Because when I say three, you're going into Babylon. And you know, he gets to three and they go into Babylon. Hosea is this warning about Guys, guys, you're, you're, you're not treating people right. You're abandoning your God. And so here's, here's how Hosea works. Hosea was a, uh, considered a righteous man. He was a good guy. He put God first. It was very important to him. And God told him, I want you to go marry a woman named Gomer, which... What a name. I mean, she's cute. Actually, Scripture says that she was beautiful, right? But, but Gomer. So Hosea is instructed to go marry Gomer. But here's the problem. Hosea didn't have a choice in the matter. And Gomer had another job. Gomer was a very successful prostitute. And God wanted Hosea to go pursue her, marry her, and raise a family with her. And Gomer, at some times, was really, really faithful to her husband. And at other times, was just lured away by sparkly, beautiful things and abandoned her husband and went back to her old ways of life. And every time she did that, Hosea had the legal right to divorce his wife, but God would whisper in his ear, I don't want you to divorce her. I want you to go find her. 
I want you to go find her in the brokenness that she's found herself in, that she put herself in. And I want you to pay whatever price it takes to get her back out of that slavery. And I want you to bring her back home. And I want you to help her heal her scars. And I want you to tell her how much you love her. And I want you to redeem her. And you bring her back. And so Hosea was obedient prophet. He goes and he buys his wife back out of bondage. And for months, it's back on the tracks again. Everything's beautiful. Everything's good. And then the sparkly things happen, and she wanders back off. And over and over again, you have the story of Hosea getting his heart broken over and over because the woman he loves, the mother of his children, is wandering off after other people. And he has to go and buy her back out of his, her brokenness over and over again. And so he's quoting Hosea 6. I should have been turning there this whole time. It's a little, it's a little, little book here. I'll read it from the screens just to save time. Hosea 6 says this. Now, now Hosea's in full prophet mode. All that narrative I just said has already happened. And he says, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us, and on the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains the water uh, that water the earth. And then it kind of switches voices. It's like God, he's talking to Israel, and he says, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? This is your slang terms for just... Israel. Your love, it's like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. It's, you know, when you wake up in the morning and the grass is wet, and then like an hour later, it's as dry as a bone, and you still have to water your flowers. God's like, he's looking at the people that are supposed to love him. It's like, your love is like that. It's there for just a minute, and then it goes away. And he says, therefore, I've hewn them by the prophets. I've slain them by the words of my mouth and my judgment goes forth as the light. And here's the quote that Jesus was hearkening to. For I desire, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Jesus looks at those Pharisees and then he quotes this book and surely, surely they heard the message. Surely they thought of all the wanderings of the people and realized that God is willing to pursue people whose behaviors are abandoning him. Gomer ran away from Hosea in the same way that you and I and all of us have run away from God. And then the Pharisees are trying to shame Jesus for accepting that kind of person back, not realizing that they themselves were that kind of person. If you've been carrying around this weight of, I'm just, I'm going to start going to church so I can get my behavior right because I really need God to accept me, you're putting a burden on you that isn't from God. If you are waiting for someone else to behave before they can be accepted and loved and belonging, you're putting a burden on them that God didn't put on them. We need to be careful not to fall into this trap of behave before you belong. Because of Jesus, you can belong before you've learned how to behave. You can belong to the group that we call Carpenter's Way before you behave like anybody else in this room. You can belong to the tribe of Jesus by just confessing him as Lord, and your behaviors may not change that day, and he still accepts you. We get a clear look at Jesus. Um, excuse me, a clear look at Jesus shows us you can belong before you behave. And the people of God shouldn't condemn those he is willing and ready to redeem. 
There's a book uh, I absolutely love. Uh, I'll read this quote and we'll pray. Um, it's called Ragamuffin Gospel. It's from an uh, ex-Catholic priest who's a recovering alcoholic and has a ton of other sins on his resume. And he's just, he's fascinated by the grace of God. In fact, the title of his book, his name is Brennan Manning. The title of his book is called The Ragamuffin Gospel, Good News for the Bed-Raggled, Beat-Up, and Burnout. Anybody? It's, yeah. You're like, hey, oh, <laughs> he's writing to me. How about that? Here's, here's what he says as he talks about this grace of God. He says this. He says, how I treat a brother or sister from day to day how I react to the sin-scarred wino on the street, how I respond to interruptions from people I dislike, how I deal with normal people in their normal confusion on a normal day may be a better indication of my reverence for life than the anti-abortion sticker on the bumper of my car. Holy cow. That's a mic drop moment. Jesus, if we're going to claim to be followers of Jesus, we need to learn to treat people the way that Jesus treated them. And Jesus says that you can belong before you've learned to behave. In fact, he celebrates small moments where we learn to look more like Jesus. He celebrates those moments when we, when we choose uh, life over condemnation. He celebrates when we treat others the way that he treats them. Okay, so we have a table to flip. Either, either it's out there in the community or it's in our heart. But you can belong before you behave. And that's going to be what we meditate on this week. Let me pray for you. We'll watch the cue together. Father, uh, this morning we thank you for your word and we thank you for the story that's preserved for us. Um, Lord, we, we, we ask, we beg for your forgiveness uh, when we're pushing people away that you're trying to redeem. Um, Lord, we, we are sorry when we are the, the child standing in front of the TV, keeping people from getting a good view of you. Father, help us to get out of the way. Help us to get out of our own way and help us to see that we are in desperate need of the physician as much as anyone else. May we be a people that accepts everyone. Uh, may, may we be a people that you can belong to. Um, may we be a people that people can see Jesus in a real true glimpse of who he is and his love. Then we love him and pray this in his name. Amen.